Read these with me if you would. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Be not one of those who gives pledges or who puts up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. One who is full loathes honey, but to one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word this morning. I just pray today, uh, in the words of Deuteronomy 32:2, that just pray my teaching would drop as the rain, my speech as the dew, like gentle rain on tender grass. May we be, Lord, like tender grass this morning, ready to absorb what you have to speak through the preaching of your word. And so grow together in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in all maturity. It's in his name we pray. Amen. A wealthy industrialist is disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily by his boat. Why aren't you out there fishing, he asks. Well, because I've already caught enough fish for the day, he answers very simply. Well, why don't you go catch more fish, you know, more than you actually need? Well, what would I do with them? He says, well... If you catch more fish, you can earn more money. You could buy a better boat so you could go deeper, catch more fish. Maybe buy some stronger nylon netting so the fish you catch will, will be preserved and you can and sell more of them away and make more money. And soon you could even maybe just make enough to have a fleet of boats, hire more people, and have more wealth, just like I have. So the fisherman asks, well, then what would I do? And the industrialist replies, well, you could sit down and just enjoy life. And the fisherman replies, well, what do you think I'm doing now? Now, this is the kind of story I'm supposed to tell you as a preacher. I'm supposed to tell you as sort of a, a corrective to, to greed, to getting more, to craving more than we actually have for a love of money, right? It's supposed to kind of correct that. It's supposed to curb our enthusiasm for more money. But stories like this, uh, even true stories, leave out a few things. For example, that the fisherman has a mind for business, and he knows he has a mind for business, and yet he also kind of knows in the back of his head it would just be easier and more comfortable to live as I've always lived, just fishing and going at the end of the day. He also has one small child already and another one on the way. His wife, who's going to return home to, doesn't have gainful employment. And she struggles with chronic pain that seems like it's going to go towards the end of her days. And upon relaying this conversation he has with this wealthy industrialist to his wife, she replies, well, do you think he might have a point about gaining more wealth? About maybe even raising more capital? So you could buy a different boat for that beat-up one. Or, or hire another man to help you because you know you need the help and you complain, complain about how much pain you're in at the end of the day. After all, you know, we, we have one child, another on the way. They may want to go to college someday. And we don't really even have much set aside for emergencies. So what if something happens to you? What are we going to do? This is more of the reality 
of a story like the one I've told. And, and these kinds of realities are why we can be so grateful for the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Because we need the bracing reminders and correctives that money can't solve all our problems. It can't provide the security that we always are kind of building up for. It can't satisfy those inner longings that we really want satisfied in our lives. And indeed, the Bible talks about the, one of the best practical antidotes to greed is, in fact, generosity. And we're going to talk about that. But especially when you are responsible for other people. In this season of your life, you are responsible for other people. And God has also given you the time and talent to be productive in what you put your hand and your mind to. Proverbs teaches us additional ways to use wealth. Additional ways to use wealth. The wealth entrusted to us by God. We're going to talk this morning then about using wealth to borrow more. Using wealth for storing up. And finally, using wealth with contentment. So first, using wealth to borrow more. Because the Bible, and specifically Proverbs, talks about credit and debt. And so we need to as well. So in order to use money, to, to, to use money you don't currently have, you need something called collateral. You need to obtain credit. It requires something of your wealth. Okay, something called collateral. It can be material collateral, right? Your house, a vehicle, property. It can be employment. So oftentimes when you're trying to borrow money, people will ask, where do you work? How long have you been there? What is your wage? And these are ways people borrow. Now, a big misnomer of the Bible is that it's against God's will always to borrow money such that a person goes into debt. A lot of people say, don't go into debt. It is against God's will. But it's way too black and white, as we see in Proverbs. One of the verses people use to justify this idea as never going into debt is Romans 13.8. It's a verse that people often point to in the New Testament. It's where Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding, except the debt to love one another. Now, a couple things about this verse. First of all, this verse primarily has to do with relationships. That God has loved us so much in Jesus Christ has loved us so limitlessly in Jesus Christ that we can continually love one another to respond by giving love outwards in such a way that we can keep doing that. That's the primary point here, but but it does say something about debt. When it does speak to debt, it specifies not to remain in it, doesn't it? It doesn't say don't go into debt. It says don't let any debt remain outstanding. In other words, if you have a debt, resolve to pay it back. That's what you're called to do in order to to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Bible does, however, warn against debt. It it, it warns against borrowing, especially foolish borrowing, as we see in our Proverbs this morning. And I want to suggest there are times when it might be wise to borrow. But first, I want to sort of step back for a minute before we get too tired and talk about credit and, and what it is and how it can be Beneficial. I found this video clip, which I think is a helpful summary for those of us who may not understand the sophisticated inner workings of economics. Here's a very helpful clip to help us understand what credit is and how it can be useful in our lives. Let's for a second imagine an economy without credit. In this economy, the only way I can increase my spending is to increase my income, which requires me to be more productive and do more work. Increased productivity is the only way for growth. Since my spending is another person's income, 
The economy grows every time I or anyone else is more productive. If we follow the transactions and play this out, we see a progression like the productivity growth line. But because we borrow, we have cycles. This isn't due to any laws or regulations. It's due to human nature and the way that credit works. Think of borrowing as simply a way of pulling spending forward. In order to buy something you can't afford, you need to spend more than you make. To do this, you essentially need to borrow from your future self. In doing so, you create a time in the future that you need to spend less than you make in order to pay it back. It very quickly resembles a cycle. Basically, any time you borrow, you create a cycle. This is as true for an individual as it is for the economy. Very good. So it sounds like credit is good, and it very much can be. However, we have to remind ourselves as well that credit is a product. Banks are in the business of lending money so they can make money from you. All right, make, make no bones about it. Banks are in the they want to lend you money so they can make money from you. It is a product upon which they want to profit. All right, so I used to be a furniture salesman when I was uh, first married and working my way through se- seminary. It was, it was a wonderful job. Uh, I loved it. I love people, and, and I love sell, I love furniture, right? You know, and sometimes I even got to lay on the mattresses and take a nap. But one of the most attractive sales, which happened a couple times a year, was a sale where you could put zero down, zero dollars down for zero percent for six months. That means you didn't have to pay any money up front and, and no interest rate for a six-month period of time from the date you made the purchase. This seems like the kind of deal where you are definitely hashtag winning, right? Like no matter what, I don't have to pay for six months and I don't have to pay any interest on it. That is brilliant, right? Except a few things. Remember, because banks are in it to make money. First of all, the dealer marks up the item. Always, always, always. The dealer marks up the item. And that happened in our business as well at Wix Furniture. That's a dirty secret. I mean, you guys are Wix Furniture shoppers. So sorry. But... That's what they did. And then, then they would sell the financing tra- uh, d- uh, contract to a bank at a discount, right? Now, the dealer gets what they want. They make the same amount of profit, a normal profit, and in a quicker amount of time because they lure people in. And even if you pay on time, the bank does too because you paid on a margin. If you don't pay on time, the bank says, oh, no problem. No problem. We will charge you interest. Plus, we'll be gracious enough to put you on a longer payment plan by default. Now, this describes what Proverbs 22.7 tells us. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. The rich take advantage of the poor borrower who cannot afford the lifestyle they wish to maintain. So, makes them a slave. Right? So, when then? If that's the case, if, if slavery is one option with debt, when then could it possibly be wise to actually borrow money? I think there's a few ways when it might be possibly wise, a few times. Number one, to increase productivity like we heard on that clip. Just think of it. Think of a, a worker, a worker of any kind, recognizes in the work that he's doing or she's doing in her life, if they purchase a van, if they purchase a van to help them store goods, to get around more quickly, to transport more people. And they recognize that by getting this van, they can be two or three times more productive, but they don't have the money to purchase that van now. In that particular case, 
the worker borrows from his or her future self. And by doing so, he can increase his productivity, get more work, and it seems wise because he can see a time in the future, not too distant future, where he can pay it back. Now, that covers some things. It also seems to sort of downgrade other kinds of ways that we often incur debt, like vacations. When we just charge our vacations, thinking, you know what, I just need time away. So I'm going to spend money that I don't have. The problem is, when you're done with vacations, you can't sell them again for the same or or close to that value. They're gone. Clothing is very similar. Don't kid yourself that you're going to get the same amount of money on EK Trade later for the clothing you're wearing now. It's not going to happen. General pampering. Keeping up with the Joneses in your social life, right? Or the Bodens, whoever it might be, right? These are ways in which the money is gone. There's no return on investment. It seems very unwise. So, so one way it's wise to borrow more is to increase productivity. Another way it might be wise to borrow more is to buy necessities, for necessities, medical necessities. If you experience a job layoff, supporting a family member in some cases, in most cases, but there are some when that's not appropriate. When your car, only car breaks down, when you need food, Proverbs 21.20 says this, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. But listen to this, fools gulp theirs down. And this speaks to our overindulgence, doesn't it? We're often willing to go into debt so that we can overindulge on something we need. So at first, food, we say, oh, I need food, I need food. I need this, I need that. Then we'll go into debt to get more of it, to get more of it. For necessities, not wants. Also, it might be wise to borrow more when you have a realistic plan to pay it off. Because until then, you are a slave to the lenders, Proverbs 22.7 says. The lender the lender's always lingering, shaking his chains, right? Reminding you he's there. There's the bill. There's another email, right? There's the statement on your card. Always reminding you that he's there. So don't use credit unless you have a plan to pay it off. So Jesus' little brother, James, wrote in his book, James chapter 4, 13, and through, uh, James chapter 4, 13 and 14, he said this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And the thing is, we don't know when, do we? Don't leave your debt for a loved one to pay. Do not leave a debt, let me say that again, for a loved one to pay. Have a plan not only for you to pay it off, but for a spouse, a child, anyone else to pay it off because you don't know what's going to happen to you an hour after you make that purchase, right? After you sign that contract, after you get those keys, you just don't know. Here's another wise thing we can learn from Proverbs. It might be wise to borrow more as long as you're not risking everything. Proverbs 22, 26 to 27 says this, be not one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts, debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Now, this proverb primarily has to do with putting up collateral for someone else, putting down security for someone else, but it also speaks to putting everything on the line just in general. Why should your bed, your bed, why should it be taken from you? Proverbs asks. So in his book, Business God's Way, Howard Dayton shares that most people don't know when they're not financially strong and they're trying to start a business that any debt they incur, as long as the debt is existing, 
Everything they own is on the line. Not just the business, but everything they own. And you want to get to the point where the only security that you're putting down for a debt is the business itself. So you're no longer a slave. You're a slave when everything you are, yourself, your finances, even the people you love, is at risk because of the debt you've incurred. Wisdom does speak that sometimes it's okay to borrow money, but be wise. Be wise when you do. Wealth can also be used for storing up. Proverbs 21.20 says this, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. You see that there? Now, the house of the wise should literally be translated in the pasture of the wise. And that, that gives us some more flavor of what's going on in the, the pasture of the wise. This is the place where all are, are grazing in security and safety, living abundantly. So, so think of the Hebrew household more as an entire street than a small condo. Right? It, it's the whole city block. It's a place where not only the individual prospers from storing up his wealth, but so does his family, so does his servants, so does his animals. Everyone is sort of gaining from this. And this fits with what Jesus says about storing up wealth, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't say, don't store up treasures. He says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And that's a very important distinction, isn't it? Jesus is warning against saving up for self, for self-indulgence, for, for security that's not real, but really just illusionary. How much you store up is between you and God. And I want to encourage you to go back last week, listen to last week's message online, where you can sort of ask that question of how much should I be saving? Am I the kind of person who can save? How much should I be giving away? But it does seem wise to store something away, an emergency fund for your family. Because the Bible also says that the person who does not provide for his family, for his own family, is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8. Storing up some to, to help your spouse in their old age because maybe you guys can't take care of each other. Or you're in a situation where one can't take care of themselves and so the other one has to, to quit their job to help support the other spouse in their old age. This is a situation I know that my own mom and dad are in right now. Uh, my mom has been suffering progressively with Parkinson's disease. And as she does so, it's, it's very difficult to watch. But my dad, thankfully, my dad's one of the most generous men I know but I'm so glad he didn't spend all his money on, on missionaries and gospel ministry. He spent a lot of it. He gave a lot of it away. He was very generous, but he stored some up. So he could retire a year or two before he planned to help take care of my mom. That's wise. Planning some to set, up, set apart for your, your child's education, whether it's here in Cayman, certainly, um, or university days. Proverbs 13.22 says that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I think it's very wise what I once heard uh, Warren Buffett write, that a wealthy person should leave his kids enough to do anything, but not enough to do nothing. Let me say that again. A wealthy person should leave his kids enough to do anything, but not enough to do nothing. That's wisdom. And that can bless your children. Now, granted, the greatest inheritance you can leave for your child and for your children's children is a godly life. There's no doubt about that. I talk to men in this church and for years in their 20s especially who are on the track they're on in large part because they watch their parents, especially their fathers, live godly lives. And they pass that down, even if they didn't pass them down a penny. But also, it can be wise to store actual financial wealth aside. 
If you want some further wisdom how to figure out the best way to store up funds, Dave Ramsey, who again, as I mentioned last week, one of the wisest financial advisors I've, I've heard and read from a Christian perspective, he recommends this kind of system for thinking of storing up money. Now, then, us, them. Now, then, us, them. I'll explain what I mean. This is the model he suggests. Now. So get your current spending, current saving under control. Now set aside $1,000 for an emergency fund. Now start to control your spending. Now take on no new debt in your life. Then there's then, now then, knocking out the rest of your debt, setting some money aside for retirement or at least for old age. And he says, us, passing on wealth generationally. Again, that Proverbs 13.22 idea. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And finally, he says, them. Because you've lived like no one else, you can then give like no one else. Because you haven't lived extravagantly beyond your means, you can then give like no one else. Now, I'm not necessarily convinced this is like the way. Not at all. In fact, I I, I question it at times for things the New Testament talks about in terms of radical generosity. Places like 2 Corinthians 8 that says, now supply for those in need so that when you're in need, they can supply your needs. And and there's this mutual giving and receiving and trusting in God. Now, neither borrowing wealth nor storing up wealth wisely will matter much if we don't get the last part right. The last part Proverbs talks about. This is exemplified, by the way, in Proverbs 13, 7. Look at this. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. And we know this is true, right? You know this kind of person. You don't know them immediately because on the surface, you're just getting to meet them. And they're living extravagantly. They they desire to eat out as often as others. They desire to, to go on trips with others. They desire to look like others. And so many live beyond their means. They spend more to satisfy a certain kind of life. Yet others of us pretend like we're less wealthy. A few years ago, I was stuck in a Miami airport for like a three and a half hour layover. Anyone else been there before? Miami airport especially? Ah, it is my least favorite airport in the world. I don't mind saying that. I mean, they're doing a great job. They're doing their best, I'm sure. But I just do not like that airport. And I'd finished my book. And so I, you know, kind of restless. I'm walking around over to one of those newsstands. I pick up different magazines. I admit that one of them was Golf Digest, but also one of them was uh, The Economist. And I was just flipping through, and they were interviewing a retired, retiring writer of The Economist who'd been at this magazine for like four decades. And they were asking him some things he learned. And one of the interesting things he said is he says that no one believes they are as wealthy as they actually are. Nobody believes they're as wealthy as they actually are. And he went into some detail. He said, like, those who are in the upper class, who are who make, say, U.S. 150000 or more, think they're in the middle upper class or in the middle class. Those who are in the middle upper class think they're in the middle class. Those who are in the lower middle class think they're lower class. And the beat goes on because nobody thinks, he says, they're as wealthy as they actually are. We all think we're, we're poor. And he says that one of the reasons he believes that happens, why we, why we put on this pretension for others, is because people don't want to be generous. Now, both of these two extremes, both of these acts of pretending have the same solution. Contentment. Contentment in the way that we use wealth. One of my spiritual heroes, the Apostle Paul, told a church in an almost infomercial-like fashion, I've learned the secret. 
of becoming content. Here's what it is. You ready? Now, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. The context here is this, I should say. It's a church who said to basically Paul, Paul, we love what you're doing. We're praying for you. We are with you. We want to support you. We want to give to you, even monetarily. And Paul is grateful, but he hesitates because he doesn't want to come off like a fundraising charitable mooch. Have any of you guys experienced that before? Where you stop maybe giving to one organization, but you still get mail from them. You still get the emails from them. You still get the phone calls. You still get the pictures of the child you used to support. And you're like, oh my gosh, three years later. Paul recognizes this. So he says, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need. He's trying to say, guys, not that I'm saying, throw throw all your money at me. I'm not saying that. Here's why. For I have learned in every situation, whatever situation I am in, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, the secret for contentment is absolute trust in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That he is both the Lord of love and he's the Lord of provision. He is taking care of all of your needs. Now, does that mean we are to let go and let God in whatever situation we find ourselves in plenty or in want? No. Look again at verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's often easy to, to forget that part. That we're supposed to still do. We're not supposed to sort of sit back and restful repose. Right? Or sleep or waste our time just trusting that God will provide. No, I can still do all things, but it's Christ who strengthens me to do them. It's Christ who provides for me as I do him and obey him in my life. What does all this have to do with using wealth? What does all this have to do with you? Well, first of all, are you in debt? Are you living beyond your means? Are you living from paycheck to paycheck, even if you're earning a decent wage? Work your lack. Work your need. Start living below your means and trust Jesus to strengthen you as you do it. All right? You might not think you can live below what you're already living. Here are 10 ideas to live below your means. Just going to give you 10 here. Number one, choose one new thing or activity each month to do without. Choose one new thing or activity each month to do without. Use older technology and styles, especially of electronics. Number three, used instead of new. Number four, one less trip off island. Number five, wait and shop longer. Take a longer period of time to decide what you're going to get. I love, for instance, slickdeals.com, where I can make a deal alert and find out something I need, but I can wait on it. I don't have to get it right away. That's impulse spending. Plan meals and groceries ahead of time, because what happens when you go to the grocery store without a plan for meals? You buy like $100 extra of what you really need, don't you? Give up what tastes best. (laughs) Get something more simple. Your taste buds will adjust. Trust me. Renting instead of owning. Smaller instead of bigger. Making a budget and reviewing it weekly. These are some ideas where you can cut back, even though you might not think you can. For those of you maybe living paycheck to paycheck, who are experiencing debt in your life or living beyond your means. Now, are you wealthy? Here's the greater challenge if you are. If you have excess wealth, the greater challenge is doing some of the same things I just mentioned. Doing some of the same things I just mentioned. Consider, I want to encourage those of you who are wealthy, consider living below your means. Not to simply save and hoard, but so you can excel in generosity. I told you I was going to get to that. So you can excel in being generous, just as God has been generous to you in Christ Jesus. 
You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, including living below your income. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, as for the rich in this present age, Timothy, charge them. So this, is, this is like me charging you. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Generosity, guys, is not only the antidote to greed, but also to opening our senses to all of God's pleasures around us. All of God's pleasures around us. Why do I say that? Proverbs 27.7, one who is full loathes honey, but one who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. Let me say that again. One who is full loathes honey. Now, this is a portrait of a man or woman who has not just honey, but a honeycomb, literally. This is the idea of overflowing honey in their life. And how do they treat it? Eh, I don't want that anymore. Kind of sick of honey. One of the greatest delicacies in Hebrew life, you couldn't just cultivate bee farms. You actually had to grab wild bees from the honeycomb and take it yourself. Eh, don't really need it anymore. This is what happens. If you possess everything you want, you can't enjoy all the little things God wants to usher into your life to enjoy. One of the antidotes then is live below your means so you can be more generous and give more of it away. Live on less so you can enjoy God more. Use your wealth wisely then. Wisely borrow when you can be more productive and have a plan to pay it back. Wisely save, because by doing so, you can care for other people. And consider the wisdom of living contently below your means. That you may witness for yourself the abundant generosity of Jesus Christ towards you and through you to others. Let's pray. God, we recognize that when it comes to wealth, sometimes it's, it's, it's bigger than just getting it or giving it all away. We recognize that we have some, and you're, you call us to use it wisely, so we ask that you would give us wisdom as you promised to give all who ask without being double-minded. So we ask you, give us wisdom for how we use our money. God, to bless others, to bless our family, to bless loved ones, to care for them well, to be more productive with the time and talent you've given us to glorify you. But help us, Lord, be content in all of this. Content, Jesus, knowing you are our greatest treasure and our greatest reward. You will provide all of our needs. Challenge us then, if it's your will, as we use wisdom and discernment and listen to you, to live even below our means. That we may be generous to others as you've been so generous to us. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.